0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very deserted city of Westminster, as once again, we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner, and today I'm joined by Daniela Dos Santos. Daniela is the president of the British Veterinary Association, the national representative body for the veterinary profession. Uh, Daniela, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, this podcast, first and foremost, Daniela, is all about leadership and effective leadership specifically. And that's really come under the test at the moment, hasn't it, with the whole outbreak of COVID 19. Um, tell me, how has it been for you at the BVA attempting to navigate the last few weeks?
1: Sure. Certainly, nothing can prepare you for being a leader during this global pandemic. I don't think there's any training courses or, or books that you can read to, to help you with this. And I think it's been a challenging time for us at the BVA you know we've been running at full speed now for sort of six weeks Um, and I think actually it's allowed me to to lead in the way that I've always wanted to lead with being led by my values with compassion and calmness and integrity and above all honesty and just before as this is all sort of building up you know we were talking internally saying we really need to start to prepare the profession that something serious is about to happen and it's going to impact on on all of us and i took the decision prior to even the government announcing the the movement restrictions that we have now i took the decision to, to go out to the profession and sort of raise my concerns and say you know we actually need to start thinking about what we're doing we need to start thinking about our role and what what we play in the control of this virus and I did a webinar open to all of the professions, not just um, BVA members, and we had over 7,000 people watch it. And it was essentially me and my voice telling them that people mattered, that they mattered, and we needed to take this seriously and look after each other. And I was incredibly proud of the profession in listening to the fact that we need to do our part, we need to change the way we work, and and they have really stepped up to the plate.
0: It's really good to hear that the uh, the profession has responded and it's also good to hear that there's been so much positive uh, proactivity um, on your part as well there. And I think it's, um I must confess, I'm not too clued up on the uh, the details of this, but the revelation in the news recently that felines have been contracting coronavirus throws up another whole host of challenges for you, doesn't it?
1: Sure. I think if we were to sort of class the challenges that the veterinary sector are facing with COVID into three sort of sections, I think one is that those colleagues of mine that are involved in food production, you know, they have an ex- exceptionally critical role at the moment. So they've kind of been thrust into the limelight as these key workers. We then have the fact that in order to play our role in controlling the spread of disease over the last almost three weeks now, the veterinary profession at large has only been offering emergency and urgent care. And that's a a very sudden and drastic change in the way we're working. But the idea behind that is we have to maintain animal welfare, but we also have to protect public health and follow government guidelines in terms of movement. And so the profession really stepped up and, and did that. Sort of mm. fall 360 and go right, we, we have a role to play here. We have to keep animals safe, but, but we have to keep people safe. And then, of course, you come down to the challenge of the involvement of animals in, in COVID 19. And actually, that's more public facing than profession facing in, in trying to get the message out there that actually, please don't panic. You know, in the grand scheme of what's happening, very few animals have contracted COVID and it's mm. always been from humans. There's no animal to animal transmission. Even fewer have showed clinical signs. And it's in an era when everybody's anxiety is heightened at the moment, you know, we're in uncharted territory. How do you get these clear messages across in a way that doesn't instill panic and offers reassurance? And and that has been a challenge, but myself and the profession at large, we have done, I think, a very good job in, in, in controlling that.
0: It's certainly lifted the lid, hasn't it, on the importance of effective communication and the responsibility of leaders to keep everybody in check and just make sure that everybody kind of maintains a clear mind and looks forward toward a common goal. Because we are going to eventually come out of the other side of this and it's just keeping everything tempered, isn't it, that's so, so important. And I think people management, especially for leaders, it plays a huge role in that, doesn't it?
1: Well, absolutely. It's people management, it's, you know, forward thinking to how people will behave as well, because as I say, people are frightened and anxious. And also remaining calm because people are panicked, people are worried. You know their livelihoods, their health, their family's health. It's all up in the air at the moment, and they look to leaders to offer them clear and reassuring advice, also realistic. You know, showing that you understand how they feel, you you recognise their challenges, and it sort of comes on to another factor of leadership. That since I've come into this into this role, I've sort of, it dawned on me even more how important representation is. How important it is that our leaders? represent the demographics of society you know yeah. I never thought I would become a leader myself just speaking in veterinary context I never thought I'd be VVA president I uh, you know I'm just a normal vet I don't have any post-nominals I don't have a PhD I, I don't have any of that and looking at people that have gone before me there were very few role models I could relate to um, I'm only the fifth female president and um, since VVA's existence and sort of as I stepped up I realized that It actually matters to have someone in leadership that you can relate to, someone who's honest and therefore someone you can trust to understand your point of view and trust them that they are doing the best they possibly can by you and your circumstance.
0: Absolutely right. Um, I think, I mean, your case, it's very interesting that you raise the point that some people do have leadership sort of thrust upon them in a sense, and they really have to then step up to the plate and deliver um, in that role. Um, with that in mind, I mean, if we were to be advising somebody, hypothetically, who were about to start their first day in a leadership role, what sort of advice would you say is the most valuable to give them?
1: First of all, be honest, you know, be led by your values and be honest. Um There is no point sort of trying to skim over difficult conversations or anything like that. And, you know, if I look at wider political leaders, my role models are those political leaders that have always been honest, even if there is a difficult message, um, because then people trust you. But I would also say that the the journey of a leader has incredible highs, but also incredible lows. And you can go from feeling like you're doing absolutely the right thing and everyone's on your side to one misunderstanding, a slip of a word, or, you know, take having to take a different stance to someone to suddenly a crashing low where you think, Goodness me, what on earth am I doing? Mm. It's important to, to, to speak to people around you and and to look after your own emotional health as well during that.
0: It is. And do you think it's important um, in terms of being a good leader to have setbacks at some point in your career? Because some people may look at leaders and think that leaders are ready made people who are born with the qualities that they need. But it is about a process of development, a learning curve, as it were, isn't it as well?
1: Um, Well, I'm certainly not someone that was was born, I don't think, to lead anyway. if If you look at my background, you know, I up in central London. Um my parents are immigrants. They are what people would call low skilled workers. My father walked out when I was thirteen, so I was essentially brought up with my mum by my mum. I didn't have anyone in my family that was into university, had no access to science role models. It actually took me five attempts to get into vet school. So um, you know it wasn't an easy ride for me and and certainly all the difficulties I've gone through, I can now see have helped. You know, I can understand people's different opinions more. I can, I can see where things are difficult, and you don't. To be a leader, you don't have to follow a certain path. I think you just have to be true to yourself and to care about people because one of my greatest values is people matter, and, and that is something that leads me all the time. If people feel like you care about them, they trust you. And they and they and they believe you value them for who they are, but they don't have to be a certain way. They're just they're just valuable exactly as they are. And I think anyone has the capacity to be a leader if they don't restrict themselves, if they don't look up and think, Well, I don't look like that person, I don't have the same background. But then that comes onto a whole different subject of the fact that role models are important and you can't you don't feel like you can be what you can't see. And certainly, actually, within the profession, there's, there's a, an issue with diversity within the profession, which, again, mm. I think is something that, that perhaps is the same in the leadership positions, actually.
0: That is um, a very important point that you uh, raise there. And there is, of course, a lack of um, equal representation. I mean, many um, examples of uh, leadership, many professions. And I think sometimes... Um, there are certain things which put people off trying to go for leadership positions, be it fear of criticism, be it fear of failure. And I think a really important message to give to the next generation of emerging leaders is to not be afraid of making mistakes, to be eager to learn, but also to not sort of shy away from criticism as well, because we see an awful lot of that, don't we? Absolutely. And
1: I think, um, I think there's sort of a flip to that. I think you you have to learn from your mistakes. You have to accept that you're never going to get it right. I think I would urge anyone listening who has aspirations for any form of leadership that you don't have to look a certain way or be a certain way or come from a certain background to make it. But I think you do have. I think wider society has to be aware that there's this narrative that we we tend to always get the same leaders and it's always the same sort of people. But the problem we have is that society, in the sort of a wider scale it becomes open season for anyone who does put themselves forward to be brought down. And often unjustifiably so, you know, um, I can speak as a woman. Some of the vitriol and attacks I've received from within my profession, my male counterparts before me would not have experienced. And and it go, it, it got to a point that we, we actually wrote an open letter to the profession asking people to say, mm. as you said, criticism absolutely fine and valid and we welcome it and it should be there. But personal attacks. Are not welcome, and I think if you look at wider society, um, leaders are often personally attacked. No, no no reflection on their leadership style. It's just society feels like they have a right because someone has put themselves forward to be a leader to do that to them. Um, and I think anyone listening, you have to kind of take a pinch of salt. Sometimes it's difficult, and that's why you have to keep talking. Mm,
0: but you just see. need to stay
1: true to yourself.
0: Certainly, and I can see exactly where you're coming from there, Daniela. It's really important uh, for anybody listening to take that on board. Um, but also, um, it brings me quite nicely on to my next question. Do you actually think that leadership is as recognised, good leadership especially, as much as it should be in this country as well? Because when we think of leadership, there is such a temptation to think of leadership as being celebrity, as being sports personalities, as being politicians. And yet there are so many examples of good leaders who are working within business, within Organizations and quite often that type of good leadership can so often go unseen, can't it?
1: I think there's two. I think there's two issues in what you've just said. I think there is a stereotype of what a leader looks like. You, you've touched on, you know, the celebrity, the sports, and the politicians. And actually, even if you were to take those three groups of people um, as separate groups, there is a there is a stereotype that in order to be a political leader you need to look a certain way be from a certain background because otherwise mm-hmm. it's really tough and, and why even try to get there if you look at celebrities you certainly do have to look a certain way and, and have a certain attitude and therefore why bother um and again I, to a degree in sports stars you have to have that talent but then again you have to put forward this persona and there are many people out there that will have interest in these sectors but will be put off because there's no one that looks like them um, and as you say often leadership isn't actually recognised. You know. When I, when I put myself forward for this position, I didn't actually recognise the word leadership, which sounds crazy when I say it now, but I didn't recognise that I was going to become a leader, in it. and it took me a few months of being in the role to realise that people now were looking up to me and looking to me for leadership. And I think perhaps it's about broadening society's understanding or reflection on what leadership is. You know, there are incredible leaders in the science community, in the media community, in, in business, as you say, but They're not recognized outside of their own sphere. And I think Mm. it's more about recognizing to me that leadership is someone who has compassion and understanding and tries to guide a group of people or a sector in the best possible direction.
0: And I think that leaves us with plenty of room for thought. Absolutely, Daniela. And I can see exactly where you're coming from, um, as I say. Um, I am conscious of uh, running out of time on today's programme, but before we do um, wrap things up here, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months is going to hold for yourself for the British Veterinary Association and also what you hope to collectively achieve in that time, particularly going through COVID-19 and beyond the other side of this outbreak. Sure.
1: So I think the next 12 months will unfortunately... um, being sort of shadowed by COVID-19 I think the profession and the world is going to look very different after this and I think the next 12 months we'll involve the profession trying to readjust to whatever the new normal looks like and ensuring that we maintain animal health and welfare what I would like longer term is to see a more diverse veterinary profession I hope to get out there and encourage more children to consider a career in our profession and um, you know you don't have to come from a certain place look a certain way you don't even need to be academically excellent you just have to have a passion and a drive for animal science and people So short term, it's about figuring out our new normal and and getting through COVID and and it's aftermath. Longer term, I would love to see my profession be more diverse in terms of um, those in leadership and those that enter the profession, both in terms of sort of gender, ethnicity, race and everything else that comes with it.
0: It is hugely important, uh, you're right, to get those messages out to the uh, the next generation. And what I think would also be fantastic, uh, Daniela, is perhaps having you back on the programme in a few months' time to look at what we've discussed retrospectively and just see how some of those hopes have started to be borne out over the next year as well. Um, but for now, it's been um, really um, insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on the programme. Thank you for coming on today and uh, speaking to me for the benefit of the listeners.
1: Thank you very
0: much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Daniela.
1: Cheers.
0: Take care. Take care. Uh, coming up Bye. next on the, uh, the programme, um, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field, the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. Uh, that's the trade body for firms who provide investment management services and financial advice to individuals and families. I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Liz, and that's coming up right now.
2: I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today.
3: No, thank you for inviting me.
2: No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may, is maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in uh, uh across the board these days but of course it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago and of course um, um, ABFA and uh, the WMA were merged.
3: That's right, yes. Um, I think it really was a a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for ni- well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now.
2: And the uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the, the uh, uh, PIMFA has been going from strength to strength uh, since... Uh, what would you say at the moment uh is, are are the priorities uh, for yourselves there
3: um i think there are a number of priorities i mean we represent a diverse group of um of businesses which all have one thing in common which is that they face the clients they they face the consumer um so whether that is face to face or whether that is um online uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um for themselves and for their families uh but we are going through uh, a number of of key challenges i mean um looking at a a a macro level if you like um markets are a little turbulent um it's it's very challenging um to um Kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world, so uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and, uh, and an investment management firm to help you um, because it is quite a complex arena, and that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally so um, if you have that as a backdrop uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated um so it it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face
2: oh without a doubt i think uh maybe Liz, there's quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. occurring <laughs> at the moment But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh i i think it's 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 a, it's a unique time almost Liz, isn't it where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it?
3: Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector, um, amongst that, where they, they try and go into schools, um and provide financial education. You go onto any website um of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um I think there there the, the businesses are facing a lot of, um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, per, I think it's personal health and social education, um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam, um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as, um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's go- it's just it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also mm. quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths. Curriculum because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters, and you know, school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or, you know, that they. They deal with on a day-to-day basis which is money so the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money um the better i think because then we'll start to promote a culture of, of savings and investments which we so badly need in our in in in, in our yes. um in our country
2: without a doubt is because again you've hit the nail on the head because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools yeah. Uh, and you know, you can, as you pointed out, very well. Uh, it, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think, as um, uh, it, for example, uh, with with the new government, we have there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another <laughs> thing entirely. Regarding what you could consider a, full, a, a, a far more applied mathematics. In a, in a lot of uh, the system, but t- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to, Liz. Yes, we, I think you're right. <laughs> we probably <laughs> shouldn't. Um, now, looking at and a couple of other points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seemed as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a, a large majority for the Conservative Party, and therefore, at least, we have now uh, left the European Union. Without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole here, uh, Liz, is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more s- s- far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next twelve months?
1: Um, I think
3: I think that, that we've still got a little way to go because, um, whilst you know, thirty first of January came and went, um, you know, we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period, mm-hmm. um, and for for UK. Um, savers and, uh, and investors, uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still, there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're, we're still, uh, uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied, um, or will be tied to the, um, European rulemaking, um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for, for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds um however it, you know the the majority of our of our firms look after uk savers um and therefore a, one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an, uh, we think that there's an opportunity there, with w- definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. Yes. What we're talking about is smarter mm. regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in Euro- in Europe England or U- the UK rather and and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties so when you have a european rule book or a rule book that is set in europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of in- intermediation that we have here, that has caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rule maker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posit- positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of uh, of negotiation and until. Uh, we see where we go to with that. Uh, and of course you've got financial services and fisheries amongst is, is the same too, piece, you know. <laughs> famous
2: players, aren't
3: they? Indeed. Really? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see, I think.
2: It, absolutely. Um and it will be a uh interesting year if nothing else. um yes. uh, now you you you've mentioned there uh, at least uh the role of uh, of course regulators. I know Uh, In the last month or so, obviously, uh, PIMFA has uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the FCA. Um, Are they, at the moment, doing their job correctly?
1: Um,
3: I think part... I I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the... The number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate um it it, uh, it is not an enviable job um by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all, because we are expecting um better supervision to prevent firms from failing, and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up Exponentially, our criticism is that you know we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or you know the lifeboat yes. funds to pay you know recompense to to consumers, uh, and, and our view is, has always been that the polluter pays. But the polluters have, have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment, which means that good firms. Are paying for bad firms, so the system we believe is broken, um, and and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know what is it that the that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big, so that you know what is the nature of risk that all needs to be um, uh, redefined. We believe and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine well if that's what risk is then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it mm-hmm. um and that is all linked to better supervision so that is something we have been critical about um we're in the process of finalizing a paper uh which we um which we have positioned in a constructive manner which is these are some of the things that we believe FCA you should be looking at in your supervisory process, and we want to help you to do your job better
2: now i I know there 's no such thing as a a magic wand Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot <laughs> but if let 's imagine let's let's imagine you did have one just for the just for this afternoon perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that uh, system and perhaps i shouldn 't ask this because if your report isn 't out yet you might want want to reveal something that 's in it um, but if you could. <laughs> Um, what would be your number one priority?
3: If we, if we were to, if I, were, my number one priority to to solve the system in
2: terms of reform.
3: In terms of reform, mm. what regulatory yeah, reform yes. you mean? Um, I think. Oh goodness me! The one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, <laughs> it is. Gosh. Yes. Wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory primi- perimeter. Sure. Um, I, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter. Um, which is you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them and what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off.
2: Now uh, I'm conscious of the time here, Liz. It's already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a, a, a little step back and uh, a, and look at um, uh, the operations of Pimfer again, it's what PINFRA do does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organisations. Can that really, Liz, be underestimated? The importance of Having those working relationships with with the departments and the organisations that you do have.
3: No, I don't. I, I think it's absolutely fundamental um, to any business, actually. Mm. But it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is Pimfer. Uh, I mean, we talk about that. You know, the values that we have as an organisation. We, we are a small organisation. Uh, And we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So relationship building um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to
2: what we do. Without a doubt. And I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it, that that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think because of the time here, we... We I, I must start to wrap up, but um, perhaps I can ask Liz. Looking forward, and I know the next twelve months is full of uncertainty. What are uh, the plans PIMFA has for it, nonetheless?
1: Um,
3: so I think our well, our key priority this this next twelve months is 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 to be talking um, much more um, and. W- we have been lobbying uh, a fair bit on this, but because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into um, see the policymakers on both sides, I think to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. That, you know they, they want to hear from us. so I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter. Um, and what does, what does regulation look like for, uh, for us moving forward? But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those, those two, um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know we have a manifesto that's got six, that's got six pillars in it, um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is is just um, kind of is just one of those things. There are a whole host of another of other things promoting the sector. As a as a force for good and as an integral part of a of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental well being uh, is is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future regulation, future supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures.
2: Well, Liz, there might never be a, a more important year. Uh, it, it has not been in a while that will determine the future of all of those things and perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. Um, but it's been <laughs> Liz, an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things.
3: Thank you. I would love
2: to do that. Liz, thank you very much. Thank you.